Well, it's Father's Day today, and as a Father's Day gift to all the dads, I'm not going to preach about fathers. I'm going to preach about Jesus, um, (laughs) because we need him. And if you don't, uh, the preacher does. Uh, I coach Little League Baseball. You guys know this. I've been talking about how fun that's been coaching with Nigel. I asked him permission to tell this story, by the way. And uh, he comes up to me after one of the practices, and we were in the car, and I could see his face. He was a little disappointed. I said, Isaiah, how you doing? What's up, buddy? And he says, well, uh, he says, uh, Dad, you don't treat me like all the other kids. I said, well, what do you mean? He says, well, when, when the other kids miss the ball, you say, hey, good try, buddy. But when I miss the ball, you're like, Nigel, come on. And I said, oh, man. I said, wow. I said, oh, Daddy, I'm really sorry, Paul. I said, well, will you, will you forgive me? And he started crying. Will you forgive me? He says, yeah. I'm driving. I'm like, oh, boy. World's worst dad. You know, I'm emotionally scarring my child. I'm picturing him laying on a, on a psychologist's couch saying, you know, my father you know, told me to get down in the dirt and stop the ball with my face. Just take one for the team. And I, I'm like, oh, boy. And uh, so anyways, a week passes, and we had practice yesterday. And I'm like being conscious. I'm like, you know, treating him like all the other kids. So after the practice, I'm taking him out for a slurpee because it was so hot yesterday. And I thought I'm going to check in and see how I'm doing. My progress sanctification how we and I said uh, I said Nigel I said listen uh, did, how did daddy do today treating you like all the other kids because in my mind I'm like I totally didn't and I said uh, I said did I did daddy treat you like all the other kids and Nigel goes and if you know Nigel he goes not even close dad not even close And then he proceeds to do impressions of me. So we need God's grace. It took me twice as long. You're like, Paul, you're stalling. You haven't got to the text. Read the Bible. You're stalling. I'm, I'm kind of stalling. Because I, I, normally I feel unqualified to preach the gospel because I'm a sinner preaching about a, a sinless Savior. But this sermon took me twice as long to write. Because we're in Ephesians 5, where Paul is talking about husbands and wives... And, and, and I'm, I know me better than you. So I was like, how, how do I speak about the beauty and the grace of Christ? With, and I'm, I'm like, I'm stopping and I'm going for walks and I'm, I'm repenting and I'm going up to Susan and I'm saying, you know, I'm working on a sermon now. And, I'm, and, she, and she says, well, I'm in children's, I'm with the Redeemer kids this morning. I won't be sitting there. Maybe it'll be easier for you to preach. I said, yeah, it will be. <laughs> Because I feel like I'm like, I can't look at my wife while I'm saying the truth of the scripture because she's going to be like, you know, you may want to walk that out on Monday, pal. Which is true. It's a paradox. I love Jesus like crazy. He's doing a good work in my life. But marriage is a paradox. Anybody who's been married longer than five minutes knows this. But also for the single people who are here who are now thinking to themselves, I should have just stayed home because Paul's going to talk about marriage all, all morning and that's not relevant to me. Or maybe you're a single adult and you're quite content and not being married, and you're like, I, you know, maybe, I, maybe Paul should just have dismissed the single people when he dismissed the kids. But here's what I want to encourage you in, and you're going to see this. It's that there's good news. I mean, radically scandalous, grace-dripped news for you in what Paul actually says about marriage. And so it matters very much for you as a single person to understand how God defines marriage because it gives you a radical picture of something that's actually bigger than marriage that has to do with you. Um, so before I read the text, I want to, again, encourage the single folks by reading something called Apocalyptic Romance, which 
There was a Pulitzer Prize winning writer and his name was Ernest Becker and in 1973 he wrote a piece called The Denial of Death and kind of what he was saying was in this piece I'm about to read to you was people used to look to marriage for things like, you know, security and stability but they would look for meaning and value and identity in, in, in spiritual things for something transcendent beyond culture. But as culture progressed, and of course this is 1973, the culture was kind of saying, well, you can't really be sure about spiritual things. You can't really be sure there's an afterlife. You can't put your hope in the fact that this life isn't all there is. And so as culture kept focusing in, saying, no, 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 there is no God, and there is no afterlife, this life actually is all there is, then the natural shift from a relational, romantic, sexual point of view was, well, then that means I have to garner all my meaning and my identity and everything out of these relationships. And so this is what, uh, this is what he writes. The love partner becomes the divine ideal within which to fulfill one's life. And all spiritual and moral needs now become focused in one individual. In a word, the love object, the love object is God. But man reached for a vow when the worldview of the great religious community, overseen by God, died. And after all, what is it that we want when we elevate our love partner to the position of God? We want redemption, nothing less. So, of course, the problem when we pull God out of the scenario of romance and marriage and sex is that you're left setting up this this human being who's destined to disappoint you. And you set up this little God, and then that little God ends up, you end up crushing the God because it can't give you what only the grace of Christ can give you. And so we come this morning to Ephesians chapter 5 so we can see the grace of God and his grace through this text. And prior to this, as I've said every week, you say, Paul, why do you do this every week? I have to. Because before Paul gets into the, hey, do this and don't do that, marriage looks like this, not like that, there is a tidal wave of forgiving grace. There is a tidal wave of irrevocable love coming toward you. And it's that tidal wave of irrevocable love coming toward you that rescues you and reforms you, that begins to shift the, the way in which we understand ourselves in light of God and we come to Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to start reading in verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so the wife should submit in everything to her husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church." 
because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is God's word. Now, the grace of Christ is both the power for marriage, and it's the pattern for marriage. So here's today's sermon as in, in a sentence. It's that God's covenant love for you is irrevocable because his covenant grace toward you is unrelenting. His covenant love for you is irrevocable. His covenant grace toward you is unrelenting. That's the picture of how he loves, and so that's how he defines marriage and creates a picture that's bigger than marriage itself. And this is what we're going to go to. And this is what we see. So the reason that we uh, started not just with this you know, classic controversial statement where it says, you know, wives submit to your husbands and husbands love your wives. We ba- I backed the text up to give you the context because in the Greek... That sentence that says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, is actually the last sentence in the clause in the Greek, and it's actually setting up everything Paul says about marriage. It's the tone of it. And so the reason why that's so important is because Paul is actually now redefining how everybody in Ephesus and you and I understand relationships. First, he redefines how husbands relate to wives. And then next week, he redefines how children relate to parents. And then he relates how the servants relate to the masters or the employers relate to the employees. So Paul says, here is the beautiful grace of the gospel. And now it's going to redefine how you relate to everybody. That's the flow of this text, and that's what he's giving us. And so, again, if you're a single person and you're here, remember that Jesus was single and entirely complete. Paul, who's writing the marriage advice, is single. That should tell us something. This isn't just a hallmark, how do we have better message, you know, marriage is kind of a sermon. It's pointing to something that's bigger and more gracious and more loving and more complete that actually transforms now how we relate to our spouses. So if you're a single person, your life is not defined by a ring on your finger, it's defined by a cross. And so the church has done you a disservice by kind of saying you're incomplete until you're married. And, and so I'm, I'm taking a moment to, to let you recognize that what Paul gives here, he actually redefines how marriage was understood then. Because in the ancient culture, if you didn't get married, you weren't very valuable. And if you didn't have children, you weren't very valuable because you didn't have a legacy and kind of everything died with you. So marriage, marriage was, was an idol. But Paul gives us something in marriage here that de-idolizes marriage. And for the husband and the wife, that helps us love each other as Christ loved the church and serve each other. And we're going to kind of unpack that and see what that's like. But if you're a single person and you're here, understanding this is really important, though, though you're single. Because it keeps you from this falling into that same kind of idolization of marriage. Now today, we, you know, we don't hold marriage in that regard. We have a hookup culture. So in the hookup culture, we still idolize that uh, that uh, sexuality, that romance. We still idolize the idea that I can't be alone. Something's wrong with me if I'm alone. I'll be complete if I'm not alone. And Paul gives us something radical uh, that redefines how we relate in this way. 
So the life of Christ, the life of Paul in the Christian faith, it actually affirms the single life in a way that no other worldview ever has. And so that's why it's important and it's good because marriage is not ultimate. Marriage points to what's ultimate. That's what Paul gives us here. This is why, how, why it's so beautiful. Because that's where the rest is. If marriage is ultimate, there's no rest. But if marriage is actually pointing to something that's ultimate, we have to look at that ultimate thing it's pointing to and find our rest there, find our hope there, find strength for our souls there, have our hearts renewed there. And that's where this text takes us. So let's, we're going to look this morning at the power for marriage and the pattern for marriage. Uh, but we're going to start with the power. In verse 21, Paul uses that, this term, uh, you know, submitting uh, to one another out of the reverence of Christ. And so he kind of gives us the context for how we're supposed to be uh, spirit-filled. What does a spirit-filled life look like? It looks like a constant denial of my own pride and an increase of humility so that I'm not living for self-service. I'm actually living to serve you. That's what a spirit-filled life looks like. That's why Paul says singing and making melody and singing hymns in your heart. What does that mean? He's not, he's not just being metaphorical. He's saying the grace of God in Christ that saved us, it creates a song in our heart. And that song in our heart causes that grace to go from our heads into our hearts and out through our hands. So now we're living a life not of self-fulfillment, but, self, but, but, but of self-service serving one another and so this is this uh picture that it gives us in his book meaning for marriage timothy keller writes marriage is glorious and hard it's a burning joy and at the same time blood sweat and tears it's humbling defeats and it's exhausting victories is a paradox it's so true and so paul's revelation of the gospel it revolutionizes marriage it gives a dignity to wives that was unparalleled in the ancient world. And this text gives a dignity to wives that was, that was not only unparalleled, but it was millennia ahead of its time. Because the paradigm in the ancient world was your wife is your property. Treat her that way. First century Rome, your wife burns your food. This is how you divorce your wife. This is Dr. Gerald Gray doing church history, uh, Knox Theological Seminary, did a lecture on this. Ancient Rome. This is how you divorce your wife. She burns your food. I divorce you. I divorce you. I divorce you. There you go. Okay? So the ancient world picture of women was a disaster. Paul comes and says, you know how to love your wives? You die for them. Millennia beyond its time. Those that take this text and say the Bible oppresses women, they've never read it, or they don't understand it, or they're interpreting it horribly, because Paul is turning this thing on its ear with the dignity that he's giving uh, to women in this way. And then he calls us as husbands to love our wives in this unprecedented way. It was unprecedented then, it's unprecedented now, and we need God's grace. We can't just roll our sleeves up and go, okay, well, I guess I'll just love my wife in a way that, you know, like, okay, let's do this thing. We, we need... We're desperate for God's grace. The preacher is desperate. That's why it took me so long to write the sermon, because every time I wrote something down, I'm like, I'm saying something that I'm like tripping all over myself doing in my own marriage. Okay, so I'm not standing up here like, the, you know, the guy that cracked the code. I'm desperate for this, but this is what grace, the, the rescuing grace does. Is it begins this renewing, renewing work. And so it's a marriage is this commitment of self-denial, not self-fulfillment. So again, if you're single, you want to think about that. Because if you've got two people looking for self-fulfillment who get married, that platform is not good. 
But if you've got two people that are willing to live in a place of self-denial, which, of course, only the gospel can do because our natural disposition is not self-denial, it's self-fulfillment, then we're actually approaching our marriage in a, in a complete, completely different uh, light. And when you think about what Jesus said in Matthew 16, 25, he says, he whoever, if you want to gain your life, then you should lose it. And if you lose your life for my sake, you'll gain it. In other words, if you seek happiness over me, you get neither. But if you actually seek me, you get both. You get the happiness, you get the fulfillment, because your, your heart is reoriented. Because our natural, you have to teach your children to share. You don't have to teach your children to be selfish. What parent in here ever sat their kids down and said, I need to explain selfishness to you? Because you're not getting it. You know how you keep giving all your toys you know, to your friends to play with and how you keep sharing your treats with your brother and sister? I just want to educate you. There's also another option, and the other option is to, like, no parent has ever sat their kids down to explain selfishness. Because inherently, we're living a life not of self-denial. But that's actually what marriage is founded on because marriage is an ultimate. It's, it's pointing to the ultimate, which was this ultimate gracious Savior who gave himself an ultimate picture of self-denial for us. It does something to us. And so we have this amazing picture. And that's also why if you're a young person and you're desiring marriage, desiring marriage is good. Being driven to be married is not good. Because the desire for marriage is, is healthy and beautiful. But to be driven to be married, is you're, you're on that road of making marriage the, the ultimate thing, which it isn't. And crushing your spouse because they're never going to be what you need. So it isn't. But that's why in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says to the Christians... Don't marry anyone unless they share their faith in Christ. Paul's not trying to be narrow. He's not trying to say, you know, I'm a cosmic, you know, I'm just going to try and spoil your life by saying, instead of there being a hundred eligible people, now there's six. Oh, great. You know, thanks, Paul. What he's trying to do is he's trying to, he's trying to, it's a gracious and loving and saving command to say, find someone else that shares the value that they're not actually going into this to be fulfilled. You have to find somebody who shares the value that they're actually going into this to deny themselves the basis of this beautiful marriage, which is obviously pointing to Jesus, right? which is where this goes. And so that's why he makes this huge you know, declaration in this regard and in this way. And that's why he prayed those two prayers, which I keep referring to over and over and over, because unless we understand the grace that grips our hearts, there's no power for any of this. This is the power marriage and we're desperate for it and maybe you're here and your marriage is strained maybe you're here and your marriage is dead i have good news god's really good with dead stuff he's a restoration expert resurrecting the dead is his jam it's what he does it's his business and so it's not by you trying harder but trusting more deeply it's not by you rolling your sleeves up and saying, okay, this, this week is going to be better than last week on the basis of my sheer willpower. Because if you're anything like me, husbands, it's, that's never going to work. But it's hitting our knees. It's counterintuitive, the gospel. Oh, God, would you change this selfish man who wakes up every morning and the factory you know, default setting is me first. But the good news of the gospel is this. There's new mercies every morning because we need them that often. His grace is fresh and new for us every morning because we need it that often. I'm not a grace graduate preaching to those who are going to graduate in grace one day. I have to wake up every day needing the grace to say, oh God, would you do it in me? And if you're a wife and a spouse, it's the same thing. It's, oh God, would you do it in me? 
And if you're a single person desiring marriage, then it's, oh God, would you do it in me? Because I'm predisposed to be searching and hunting and looking to and fro for, for someone to fulfill me. Which is going to be, anybody who's married longer than five minutes will tell you, don't do that. <laughs> They're going to let you down. Anybody who's been married longer than five minutes knows we all marry the wrong person. Okay? <laughs> we all marry the wrong person. Okay, spoiler alert, you've married a human. Okay? So when two sinners have a special hug, you know, um, it's a life of giving and forgiving. And so we need the gospel to empower power our marriage. Absolutely empower our marriage. That's the picture of it. We have been justified by grace. So we are free from justifying our sin with our spouse. And we are free to confess our sin to our spouses. We have been sanctified in grace so that our hearts can give and forgive as his grace moves from our heads to our hearts and out through our hands. And so this power to give and this power to forgive in our marriage, the power for marriage, it's not self-generated. It's spirit-wrought. We don't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and be better dads and husbands and wives and mothers. It's a, it's a spirit-wrought thing. It's what he does. It's inside out. And that's the beauty of his gospel. And that's why Paul took three chapters to give a tidal wave of grace coming toward you before he even talked about this. And so let's talk about the pattern for marriage. In verses 22 through 25, the most controversial text, probably in modern day, you know, kind of relational conversation, where it uses these two words that just cause fireworks to go off, submit, submission, and headship. And so I want to take a minute, I'm just going to go head on at this, and hopefully it will serve you and hopefully, hopefully it will help you. We have to take these things together to understand them. If you tease it apart and say, no, let's just look at the wife, and what's she supposed to be up to, and how does that look, and let's look at the husband. If we, if we dissect it like that, we've lost the simultaneous serving. And Paul is giving this in the framework of Christ's grace, which is going to play out in a marriage like a simultaneous serving. I mean, it's a mess because we mess it up with our sin, but so it's, it's always imperfect, but it's also increasing. It's imperfect because we're sinners as husbands and wives, but it's increasing because our love for Christ and the grace of Christ in us is causing us to say, I want to serve you in that way. I've, I know I've, I know I've been a total jackass this week, but I want to love you and serve you in that way. God, would you do something in my heart? We have to take it together. We're going to make a mess of it. It doesn't say, and I have to say this because this is the cultural conversation amongst people who've never read the Bible. The Bible does not say women submit to men. It says that nowhere, and it doesn't say it here. It says that the wife is to submit herself to her own husband, not women submit to men in general. That's not what it says. It's not, Paul's not advocating for that, and I need to say that. He's talking about a woman that's in this service mode to a guy who's dying for her. That's the picture. And so, husbands and wives, Paul is calling us to abandon self-interest in two distinct ways, in two distinct roles. So the husband has a role and a way to serve and love his wife, and the wife has a role and a way to serve and love her husband, but it is a simultaneous uh, serving in two distinct ways. And it's important that we get that or we mess it up. Again, Jesus is the picture of this. 
Jesus submitted, as his wife submit, Jesus submitted. In the garden, we see him submitting. It says to the husbands, lay your life down. On the cross, Jesus laid his life down. So Christ did both. And he's, he's not just the model for our marriage, he's the motive to be like, would you take this sinful heart, this guy who can't get it right, every, every you know, halfway through the sermon, I'm walking back upstairs, and Susan's in the bedroom, and I'm like, babe, I'm like, I, I'm like somebody else has to preach this on Sunday. <laughs> And then when she told me she was in Redeemer Kids, I was like, oh, good. <laughs> Whew, it's going to be way easier to delete, deliver a message of a sinful vessel that needs the grace, you know, if you're in Redeemer Kids. So thank you for being there. Uh, so this is the, what he gives us. Now, there's two ways to erase the grace. There's two errors the church has always done because the church is full of sinners and there's sinners in the pulpit. We're not exempt. And when we get on some sort of a theological hobby horse or we get on our own personal kind of paradigm, we make a mess of this text. Here's two, two errors, and they erase the grace. The first error is to interpret headship to mean the husband gets his own way. That's your interpretation? If you think headship means the husband gets his own way, that's not, that doesn't look like Christ the cornerstone. That looks like Fred the Flintstone. That's not a scriptural picture of Jesus. A husband gets his own way. Hey, should we paint the house this color or this color? Well, I'm the husband. You should submit to me. We're painting it this color. Should we do this with the money or this with the money? Well, I'm the husband, so you should submit to me. We should do this with money. If your interpretation of headship is the husband getting his own way, I have news for you. You are not going to find very many people throughout all of church history, many theologians that are going to arrive there. You're going to find some weirdos that arrive there. But Jesus Christ, who is the picture of the head, what did he do? Matthew 28, 20, he says, and I quote, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. So headship looks like that. So we, we erase the grace if we interpret it that way. And I said this to Susan, and, and I'm going to because I said, I, I, wrote, I wrote it, and then I went upstairs and I confessed my sin. So what I'm about to tell you, I'm praying to God I can do. You see, if our wives feel like they're being served, we're getting headship right. If our wives feel like they're our servants, we're getting headship wrong. If our wives feel like they're being lovingly served, we're interpreting this well. But if they feel like the wait staff, not even close. So that's the first error. Here's the next error, because of course, history's made a mess of how we treat women. The church has made a mess of how we treat women. So liberal theologians go, well, I have a great idea. Let's just say that this is a cultural command, and let's just erase headship all of... So the first mistake is to interpret headship poorly, and then the next mistake is to erase headship and say, no, 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 there's no headship. Instead, let's have marriage be a two-headed monster with two people looking at each other saying, you're not the boss of me, you're not the boss of me, you're not the boss of me, you're not the boss of me. And then we've erased grace on that in that ditch. That's not the picture. In fact, and I already said it, but I'm going to say it again. When people say, well, Paul, you know, this whole business of headship, that's cultural. No, it isn't. Because if, it was, if Paul the Apostle wrote this culturally, he wouldn't have said, husbands, love your wives and lay your lives down for them. The cultural thing would have said, husbands, treat your wives like property, and if they burn your dinner, just go ahead and divorce them. Because that's what the pagan world was doing, that's what the ancient uh, uh, Hebrew world was doing, that's what everybody was doing. So it's not cultural. You can't make that argument that it's cultural because it doesn't look anything like the culture. It looks like this radical loving service. And so 
And so the gospel pattern of the grace of Christ gives us these two individuals who are equal in their value and their dignity before God, denying themselves, preferring each other through two distinct and different roles. And marriage is patterned after God's grace because marriage is powered by self-giving love. Self-giving love is the fuel for the form of this marriage. And so it's to be beautiful. And like I said earlier, we can't self-generate this. And I'm not going to burden you husbands and say, you know, try harder to do that. You cannot. If you dig down deep, what you find isn't good. What you need to do is get outside yourself. Not man-curved, inward-curved, upward. I'm, I'm here trying to take this text about marriage to point you to Jesus. Wives, same thing. If we look at this like a tit-for-tat, well, maybe if you loved me, then maybe I would respect you. Well, maybe if you respect me, then maybe I would love you. This is not a reciprocal if-then conversation. If you take this and turn it into husbands, if you do this for your wife, then therefore they will do that. You have just if-then the gospel. There's nothing about that that looks like the gospel. So if your wife is a, being a flaming maniac, the scripture calls us, to love her and lay our lives down for her. Do you want to know why? Because Jesus Christ did that for you, you flaming maniac. That's the picture of the cross. The worst version of you he's laying his life down for. Yeah, but Paul, what if I keep doing that and she doesn't... What if I keep doing that and, you know, and she doesn't seem to be changing? You mean like you? <laughs> to Jesus? You mean like that? You see, that's the picture. That's why this is impossible without the grace of God. That's why this is impossible unless we're on our knees. And only, only the gospel frees us enough to stop justifying ourselves and to get out of the if-then. And wives, it's the same thing. Well, maybe I would be able to lovingly submit to my husband if he wasn't such an idiot. You mean like you? I do the cross. Yeah, and you see, you see how countercultural this is. See, this is why grace is so upside down. You don't need a Bible. You don't need the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit to go through life and say, "I'll be good to you if you're good for me." That doesn't require anything. That's just Aristotelian logic. But we're called to this gospel logic that's counterintuitive. I says, "No, this is the picture." And none of our marriages, starting with mine, are in this place because it, are in this place of perfection. Now, I, if you're married, you've had marriage problems, or you have some marriage problems, or you're going to have marriage problems because you married a sinner. So we need grace to be the power for our marriage, and we need grace to be the form for our marriage. Starting with this preacher, whose wife could tell you after the sermon, "Yep." The Lord has done a good work in Paul, and oh God, may he continue it. Right. <laughs> I'm telling you. All right, so this is why this is uh, so important to understand and not, not fall into either of those ditches on, on interpreting that head trip so poorly. And so here's the good news, and I'm going to close with this. You see, God created marriage with saving grace in view. Because... The first Adam in the garden was patterned after the second Adam, Jesus Christ, on the cross. Which means when God gave Adam his wife in the garden, he already had a picture of his saving grace. This is the good news of this. 
You see the great mystery when Paul says in verse 32, this is profound. He's not saying because it's not knowable. He's saying it's profound because the grace is so amazing. Look at Jesus. Oh my goodness, I can't believe this is the picture of how we're supposed to love each other. God's definition of marriage actually showcases grace in Christ. That's why in verse 26 when he says, Christ washed his bride, which is you and me. So husbands were brides to Christ. It says when Christ washed his bride with the water of the word, what does that mean? Water, in, so in the Greek, it's water of the labor. It's baptism. It's Jesus Christ is your holiness. Jesus Christ made you holy. You don't make yourself holy. You don't clean yourself up. Christ cleans you up. You can't be presentable to God. Jesus made you presentable to God. So what did he do? He washed you with the water and the word. The water is the baptism. That's why on Baptism Sunday, I bring in a laver in here. And we baptize in the laver, and he cleanses. And the word is in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Your sins are forgiven. You are clean. You are absolved. It is finished. There's nothing left to do. That's how Christ cleans his bride, so that she is spotless and blameless. You don't read this and say, well, what do I do this week to make myself a spotless and blameless bride? You're going you're gonna to get on a treadmill of works righteousness. This text says, Christ has made you spotless. Christ has made you holy. Christ has sanctified you. And from that place of it's done, now that grace empowers us to live to the glory of the one who saved us, to clump around in our dad's shoes and obey him and desire obedience, and to love our spouses and to love our wives and to lay our lives down. And we don't need to justify ourselves and we don't need to justify our sin because grace has freed us to say, honey, forgive me again. I want to give. I want to forgive. The, only the gospel of grace can free us to do that. That's the power and that's the pattern of the gospel. God's faithfulness to you does not fluctuate on the basis of your faithfulness to him. That's why he makes marriage look that way. God's faithfulness to you is irreversibly grounded in Christ's faithfulness for you. That's the picture that he gives for marriage. When Jesus Christ made his vows from the cross, they sounded like, Father, forgive them, and it is finished. The cross does not say, I'm giving myself to you because you're faithful and deserving. The cross says, I'm giving myself to you, though you're unfaithful and though you're undeserving. So God makes the picture of marriage look that way. While Christ was being denied and abandoned and betrayed and mocked by his bride, he stayed. This is the scandalous grace we, can't ha we don't have that kind of capacity, only Christ. That's why we live our lives on our knees. That's why we, we say, oh God, the grace is the heartbeat of his commitment to you. And his heartbeat of commitment to you sounds like, I forgive you, I love you. 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 That's the heartbeat of his marriage to you. Married to you. That's his heartbeat. So that's why he doesn't lessen it when he defines marriage. Yes, we are broken. Yes, we are sinners. Yes, there are broken marriages and divorces and remarriages in this room. And for that, there is grace. You are free. You're not under condemnation. And now from that place of forgiveness, may you live your life to God's glory. But may we not diminish the beauty of this picture of marriage to suit our experience. May our experience be run through the scandalous grace of this the picture of this marriage. Because when you show God the worst version of you, he runs to you. And so, 
nails did not keep Christ on the cross, like the song says. His love for us kept him there. God's love for you is irrevocable because his covenant grace is unrelenting. Let's pray.